If you have your Bibles, please open with me to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6. We're actually going to read verses 10 through 17, even though we've looked at some of the, because I want to keep focusing on the context of the passage, the context of the passage. But we're looking at the believer's, again, the believer's armor, part two. This is your protection against the enemy. Have you ever had things go wrong? I'm not talking about this morning. Where you get angry, you start stomping around, start throwing things, start using four-letter words. I don't even want to go any further. The enemy has got you. He's looking to stumble you. He's come to kill, steal, and destroy and rob you of the joy of the Lord. No matter whatever is going on in your life, you and I should be full of joy. You're still going to be with the Lord in heaven for all eternity where there is no sin, no pain, no sorrow, no temptations anymore. And those words are comforting. And the Lord will come for the congregation of saints, but He also comes for each one of us individually, personally, to take us to be with Him. And each one of us will receive a a new name for the new work that He's going to do in your life, in my life. A new life, just as... Again, Jacob, who was a heel catcher, had his name meant heel catcher, deceiver. But given the name Israel, that means governed by God. And that's what God wants to do, is really govern us, to guide us, to direct us in that straight and narrow path. And that's why he has given us this spiritual armor of God. Let us read together from our text. Finally, be strong in the Lord in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against world forces of darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in that evil day having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded up your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel peace. In addition to all, take up the shield of faith with which you are able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Father, I can't help but thank you again for all that you have done, for your mercy and for your grace 
and that your mercies are new every morning. And Lord, you have given us everything we need for life and godliness. You have given us hope. You have given us the power. But most of all, you have given yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Look in verse 16 for a second. We see that fourth piece of armor. It's a, a shield of faith. A shield of faith. It's not that typical one that you would see when the Roman army would be fighting that is a round little shield that they would hold up on their hand, but it is a, a tall four and a half foot, roughly two and a half foot, and they would hide behind it. It would cover their entire body, this shield of faith. God has given you a shield of faith and we are to take up this shield of faith. And it's what protects us. Protects us from what those flaming, fiery darts that will come your way. A foolish question I'm going to ask. Have you ever pushed your husband's button or your wife's buttons or even your kid's buttons? When you do, you're playing into the hands of the enemy. You are a puppet, a mannequin, and the devil is using you and he uses you to throw these flaming darts to destroy the confidence, the relationship, to find fault with someone. But sometimes, and mostly, these flaming darts come from the enemy. They come, in a sense, in this world, in the world system, in the temptation of the, the flesh, in pride, just the ways of the world. And what he is doing is he has given you and me that way to defend ourselves against this enemy. Now these fiery darts typically at this period of time, they would be dipped oftentimes in pitch and then ignited with flames and they would shoot them. And they would ignite and they would cause houses to burn, even the shields, because oftentimes shields were leather, and if they'd been fighting so long, they'd dried out, but if they were wet, it would help to put them out. It would protect them from being hit. And we fall oftentimes prey to these schemes, these temptations. These are the fiery darts. Satan's fiery darts consist of several things. It's really a question of salvation. Am I saved? Have you ever wondered, are you really saved? I mean, you know you're saved, but there are times that there's doubt. Maybe because of that decision I made, that choice I made, maybe I'm really not saved. That is a fiery dart that comes from the enemy. A question of your call, someone into ministry. A gifting that God has called you maybe to be evangelist or a teacher and, and you're questioning or even are you just a believer or a pastor or, or even a husband? How can I be a husband or, or a wife, a, a godly wife? A question of your worthiness. Could God really love me? I am so unloving. I am so horrible. The enemy is very good at putting these fiery darts, the questions, questions of doubt, these questions bring discouragement, depression, and many times leave a believer defeated, ineffective, 
in whatever God has called them to be. But God's given you and given me a, a shield of faith. We don't have to be ineffective. We can go through this world, no matter what's going on, and have that assurance, that peace, that joy that we're going to be with the Lord. And he's coming for you and he's coming for me soon. No matter what is going on in this life, no matter whether there is a war going on in this country, no matter who the president is, you know that you're going to heaven. And he's coming for you. He's coming for me personally. But day in and day out, the enemy, Satan, hammers. Hammers you with temptations of immorality, hatred, envy, anger, covetousness, pride. These are the tools of the devil. He's been doing these same things from the very beginning of time. Think with me again when you think about Adam and Eve and how he enticed them to really doubt God. And then when they doubted God to put their trust in a lie. Has anyone ever bought into a lie? Oh gosh. These are Satan's spiritual darts. I don't know when, but after the first year, I'm going to do a, a series again. It's called The Truth Project. And The Truth Project, the, the main thing is to, to show you, to show me how you and I have bought into the lies of this world system. And our kids have bought into the lies. And we play right into his hands. See, what God would have you and me do is really put all of our trust, put all of our faith on him. Completely, totally, unquestionable. Trust him. Not just for salvation, but trust him for every little detail. It doesn't matter whether it's small or big. Nothing is too big and nothing is too small that God doesn't want to handle in our life, if we're willing to trust him completely. And when things don't go your way and my way, God uses it and he uses it to build us up, to see him, to draw near to him. And then when we draw near to him, he draws near to us. Years ago when John Patton was translating the Bible for a South Seas island tribe, he discovered that they, they had no word for trust or faith. And one day, a, a native who had been running hard came into the missionary's house, flopped down in a large chair, and said, it's good to rest all of my weight upon this chair. And he said, that's it. I'll translate faith as resting one's whole weight upon God. And that's what we do, is we trust everything unconditionally upon God who is faithful to keep us until that day, to handle each and every detail. And you know what has to happen for you to do that? It means things have to go sour in your life sometimes. You're, you're encouraged by that, aren't you? Because God uses that situation 
to build you up in that most holy faith. He uses that situation to reveal that your faith is real and he is faithful. Even when you have fallen, he is the one that will lift you up and keep you. In fact, in Proverbs 30, verse 5, it says, the fact is every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Again, how do you know that God is faithful? For me, that first experience that, that the lights went on, and you know what I mean by the lights going on, someone came up to me when I was a new believer, and he says, how, how do you trust God? How do, you, how do you really cast all your cares upon him? Do you know how to answer that? And I didn't know how to answer it. I just said, you know, that's the $6 million question. Because it is hard. to you, you, you give it to him and you take it back. And then he says, well, you're doing it. What do you mean I'm doing it? And he saw all that I was going through and I was giving it to the Lord. And see, the reason I say that, sometimes you're already giving it to the Lord. And others see that you're trusting in the Lord and God will bring someone alongside and will encourage you and show you that God is being faithful and you are trusting and your faith is real. How else would you know your faith is real unless it's tested? Time in and time out. God has been faithful when everyone else around me has not been faithful. When it looks like the whole world is against me, but God is faithful. And it's only in those times that we do come to know that our faith is real. And he really will keep us until that day. 1 John 5, 4 says this, whatever is born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. If you have been born again, you are an overcomer. Are there any overcomers here today? Let me hear you say it. I'm an overcomer. I know that sounds like a, a kid's guy. But you know, sometimes we have to say that I am an overcomer in Christ who strengthens me. And sometimes we have to repeat that because, you know, it, it, it takes a while to get rid of these negative waves. Because the enemy continues to fire these darts. But the scripture is very clear. Whatever's born again or born of God, born from above again, overcomes this world. The world system, the lust of the flesh, the lust of... God who began a good work in you, he will complete it. And we need to believe in God's word that he's faithful, that God does not lie and it's true and that we, we find it as an anchor because again, for me, when I sinned, after I became a believer and then my eyes were open, it was this verse I did not even know that God brought to mind. I must have heard it somewhere. He could, he could tattoo it in my mind if he wanted to. But he was telling me, I will finish the work in you. And there is assurance and there is comfort that when you put all your weight upon him, he will keep you. He not only will provide salvation in the end, he will save you from yourself one day, one moment at a time. Look in verse 17. Verse 17. 
that first phrase, we, we see the, the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation is that fifth piece, again, of armor. And again, it's a, a helmet. They would put it on. It would protect them, again, from being hit in the head. I think it's very significant that, that God chooses, again, this, this helmet of salvation that was bronze. And it would be metal and protect them and have shin guards. And, and it's important to understand, when you see bronze in the Bible, it's always symbolism of, again, judgment. Or brass, in some translations, use that. When you have a, a helmet, would you think you can save yourself by the world's ways? You are under judgment. But when you put on the helmet of salvation, you are saved. And being saved in your mind is being washed by the water of the word. Again, that bronze or iron helmet. It, it was equipped with all this protection. And I, the person that puts on this helmet of salvation is one who is already saved. That word saved, past tense. When you're saved, it, it's, it's done. Do you realize that? If you've been saved, you've been born again, it's done. Don't argue with the devil when he says, oh no, you're not saved. You're saved, but the scripture goes on and the three tenses of salvation is you're being saved. That means you're learning to work out your salvation in fear and trembling for it's God who is at work in you. You're learning to apply these things to your heart. That he is taking the spirit, taking and washing your mind with this word and one day he will save you. Now he's not talking again, as I just explained, about taking salvation because you're already saved if you put on this helmet of salvation. But it's to protect you from Satan's blow because the chief place that Satan is going to attack you is your mind. And that's why we need that helmet of salvation. Look at John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe the word of God? If you have come to Jesus Christ as this scripture or come to the Father, he will not cast you out. He died for you while you were in your worst. He already knew whatever sin that you were, had done and going to do and he's already died for you. He's not going to cast you. Well, I didn't know that you were going to do that. No, God is all-knowing. And when you come to him, he certainly will not cast you out and that is comforting and it's assurance that a person who is saved once saved is always saved now some people may act like they're saved and walk away from the lord and that it's what we call apostate but a person that's truly saved they are kept by the power of god until that day look with me in john 10 28 and I give them, this, these again are those who have trusted in him. I give them eternal life. I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. So, so a believer, one who is born again, will not perish. You will never see destruction. 
You are kept in him. And notice, no one will snatch you out of his hand. How in the heck do you think you're going to jump out of his hand? No. No one. And what he's referring to is the devil. No matter all the fiery darts that come your way, no matter how you fall, he cannot snatch you out of the Lord's hands. Because you're kept by the power of God until that day. And that's comforting. Now, what it means is it it is a hard path if you choose to, to yield to the enemy. And every one of us at some point do yield to the enemy if we're honest. There's a story, an illustration about a a little girl, a coal truck pulled up in front of her and dropped a ton of coal right in front of her house on the sidewalk. And she went out with a little bitty shovel and she began to shovel one shovel at a time and take it and and put it in and and go back and get another shovel and put it in and and again and and again. And and the neighbor's watching and he's looking and and he finally comes over to her and he says, you'll never, never be able to, to get it all in. She replied, Oh, I will, sir, if I work long enough. You're here because you're learning to work out your salvation in fear and trembling. You're not working for salvation, but you're learning to trust in God. You're learning to cast your cares upon Him. We just plod on one foot in front of the other. His mercies are new every morning. You confess your sins, he's faithful and just to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. An interesting thing, though, the test of a person's character, uh, think about this, is, is what does it take to stop a person? The test of a person's character is what takes to stop him. This little girl was going to keep moving on one moment at a time, dealing with this situation. Sometimes when things go bad, that's it. Why, why do I even try? Why do I even try and be a Christian? And they give up. And it really reveals the character. Now that character may be the character of an unbeliever. It may be just one who made a profession, but didn't possess a relationship with Jesus Christ. But sometimes it's a person who just needs to learn to discipline their lives. We need to pray that God would grant us the grace of repentance, but also the grace to sustain us, the grace to to walk in that discipline in the Lord. I'm not talking about him disciplining us, but learn to discipline ourselves, to sit down with him and read his word and hear him speak to us. Again, when, when somebody asks you or you're trying to encourage them to read the Bible, don't tell them read five chapters a day or two chapters here, one chapter over here, one chapter there. Tell them to read the Bible with the intent to hear the living God. And if they read with the intent to hear God, they'll hear God. There have been people through the years, I said, you know, you, you, you say you're seeking God. You really want to know. I said, read the Gospel of John and, and you pray and ask God, if you're real, would you reveal yourself to me? And that person that is sincere will come to know Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ loves to reveal himself. And that's what we need to do. 
Job, in Job 13, 15, it says this, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. Job was going to continue no matter what. Will you continue in the faith? Sometimes you'll see people coming to church for a while and things will distract them. They'll, sometimes it's work. Sometimes it's their hobbies. What is important in your life, you will always do. And when someone else lets something else get in front of their relationship with the Lord, it's a red flag. But if you say you love the Lord with all your heart, all your mind, soul, and strength, the first thing you'll do is you'll want to meet with the Lord. Not just here, but in the Word, in prayer. It means that you will congregate with other believers if, if you're at Starbucks or someplace and you see somebody reading the Bible and, and you'll want to talk with them. You'll want to share with them. If you have a family that are unbelievers, you want to tell them about Jesus. You want to tell them what he has done in your life. You don't have to be this theologian. Simply tell them what he has done in your life and how he's changed you. And he has been faithful to you. When God had first called Jeremiah, he told, he told, him, uh, told the prophet that no one's going to listen to you you're going to be rejected. You're going to be afflicted. Yet he testified. How would you like to be God's prophet? They're, going to, they're not going to listen to you. They're, they're going to reject you. They're going, they're going to afflict you. They're going to beat you up. Praise God, hallelujah. No, none of us want to do that. But Jeremiah, notice what he says in Jeremiah 15, 16. Your words were found and I ate them. And your words became for me a joy and a delight of my heart. For I have been called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Jeremiah knew that he was called by God. Everyone here that's been born again has been called by God. What a precious calling. He's called you to be an ambassador, to be a light unto this world. He's called you to walk in that great commission. He's called you to know his heart, to proclaim his name. Galatians 6, 9 says this, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. I'm not a runner. I, I, I've never really ran, but I've seen some of those guys run. And you can tell those that haven't trained good and it just seems like they just kind of quit. I quit before I get started, to be truthful. But anyways, you know, it's real easy. You're, you're, you're doing the right thing in the Lord and you get weary. And he says, don't get weary. God remembers everything that you say and everything you do. When the enemy comes against you and and he's just throwing those darts. God knows and he remembers. And he's going to reward you for your faithfulness in him. And by the way, he is the one that makes you faithful. Second Timothy 4.7 says this. I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. One more time, let me read that. I fought the good fight, I finished the course, and I've kept the faith. Three points he makes there. Now, we, we talked about this armor of God. There's only one thing that is really 
again, that could be attacking the enemy. And that's going to be, and we're going to look at that, is that sword of the Spirit. But the Bible's full of this language. Paul was assured he fought the good fight. He knew that there was a course he needed to finish and kept the faith. In fact, the Christian armor is talking about being strong and putting on this armor, standing firm, take on the full armor of God, resist in that evil day, gird your loins with truth, put on that breastplate of righteousness, take up that shield of faith, the helmet of salvation and the sword of spirit. Nowhere does it talk about surrendering to the enemy. We surrender to the Lord. But nowhere do we throw the towel in and give the enemy victory. But we keep fighting. It is a fight to stand firm. It is a fight to make that commitment and be committed to the Lord. To live a disciplined life is not an easy chore. If you've got to go to work early, it means you need to get up earlier to read the word, to give the best to the Lord. Now, maybe you're not a morning person. Maybe you do it in the evening, but you've got to do it before you're too tired to read. But it's not easy. There's going to be distractions. There's going to be phone calls. If you're married, you have kids, and the list goes on of all the things. It is a battle to put the Lord first. The faithful believer is always to be submissive to the Lord. But submission to him is the furthest thing from passivity. We just don't roll over. Let the enemy have his way. No, no. The Bible likens you, by the way, this is the believer, what he says. They're, they're runners, they're fighters. They, again, they're opponents of Satan. They're seekers after holiness. Countless other names to denote their obedience to the Lord. This is a war zone. Not just here in your home, in your workplace, how you handle things, the, the way that you deal with things. In fact, in 2 Peter 1.3, it says, seeing that his divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and excellence. Notice he's granted us Everything pertaining to life and godliness. What it's saying is, you and I are without excuse. Everything that you need to live a holy life is already given to you. It's a done deal. But what it means is, we now have to appropriate these things that are already given to us in Christ Jesus. We have to get in the Word we have to want to know him. We need to pray, God, give me the strength. Give me the insight. Give me that disciplined heart that desires to put you first. Look with me in 2 Peter in verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. Now for this very reason, also applying all diligence... In your faith, moral excellence. In your moral excellence, knowledge. In your knowledge, self-control. In your self-control, perseverance. In your perseverance, godliness. In your godliness, brotherly kindness. In your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
See, this is something that you and I continue to grow in the love and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So the question I have for you, are you more like Jesus today than you were last year? If you're not, what are you doing to discipline your life? What time are you willing to commit to him before everything else? Now that doesn't mean any of us are perfect. No, we're not. But he will perfect us as we turn to him. Look at 2 Peter 1.10. Therefore, brethren, be all more diligent to make certain about your calling and the choosing of you. For as long as you practice these things, you'll never stumble. The Lord gives commands to obey and equip us. And again, he, he's saying here, be all the more diligent to make certain about your calling and your choosing. Sadly, some people say, well, I said a sinner's prayer 20 years ago and I'm going to heaven. Saying a sinner's prayer does not save a person. A sinner's prayer may be a step in that right direction. But the true knowledge will be, do they continue to follow Jesus Christ? Are they growing in him? Are they wanting to know him? And certainly that is a step in that right direction. And certainly many people, when they say it, they're truly, sincerely wanting to give their hearts to the Lord, and they do. But not every person that says a sinner's prayer. The saddest thing that ever happened to me, I, I gave an altar call one time, and there was a, a guy that came forward. He gave his life to the Lord. And he never walked back in a church, never opened his Bible and said, I'm going to heaven. I said a sinner's prayer. It wasn't sincere. It was fire insurance to him. He felt guilt for a moment, but he never responded truly to the Holy Spirit. Now, the, the most troubling attack against believers is, is tempting, first of all, believers, who are true believers now I'm talking about, that they've lost or they could lose their salvation. If you are a believer, you have been born again, you will hunger and thirst for righteousness. You have a choice now to make. You need to step back from some of the world's ways and go to the Lord. Now, I remember when, when I, was, I was about an hour away from home at the time on the mainland, and uh, I used to drive an hour every day to, to get home, and, and my wife would prepare this wonderful dinner, a wonderful dinner, and I'd stop at Jack in the Box or Taco Bell, and I'd kind of, oh, I'm hungry, and I'd fill up, and when I got home, I just didn't want to eat the meal. It's the same thing Spiritually. If you're filling yourself with the things of the world. Now, the things of the world, not, not all things are bad. But we need to fill ourselves with the word of God. Look with me in John 16, 33. These things I've spoken to you so that you may, or so that in me you may have peace, and in the world you have tribulation. But take courage, I've overcome the world. See, when you decide to walk with Jesus Christ, when you decide to be set apart, Drawn. The world is going to try and draw you away. Draw you after itself. 
And God's wanting to draw you to him to experience the fullness of joy of being in him. One of the central truths of, of, of John's first epistle is that the certainty, the certainty that, that of the spiritual knowledge that we know that we have come to know him. Let me read from 1 John 2.13. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And I've written to you, children, because you know the Father. Let me start with a question. Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your friend, as your Savior? Do you know His mercy and His grace? See, this is what, when we talk about knowing salvation is knowing God and, and His true Son is knowing His character, knowing His love for you and for me. Again, look at 1 John 5, 13. These things that I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. First of all, God wants you to know that you have eternal life. The enemy is going to try and prevent you from knowing you have eternal life. Do you know that you're saved and you're going to be with the Lord one day? If you do, live like you're saved. Live like a child of God. Now, here it's telling us that God has written these things that we might know. God wants us to know the assurance of being in him. But there's something else I want to call your attention to. He says, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. What does it mean to believe in the name of the Son of God? Well, I believe in Jesus. I believe in Buddha. Believe means you're willing to put all of your weight upon him. It means you're willing to put all of your worries and cares upon him. No matter what you're going through, he is a God of love and he will provide and take care of all of those needs that you have. That he's going to use that situation for good. That's the knowledge of, of knowing him. But Satan's purpose is just the opposite. is to cause you to doubt the promises of, of God, to doubt his power, his goodness. It's easy to sing a song, God, you're so good. And when things are going wrong, why, God, are you allowing these things to happen? To doubt his truth, the enemy will have. Or his ability to save you until that day. To keep you. If we do not hold up that shield of faith, we do not put on that, that helmet of salvation, then the enemy, he, he's praying on us and he will succeed and robbing believers of their joy. Their joy. It could be a, a boss, it could be a news, it could be anything. We should be the most joyful people in the world. Now, some people are more expressive, you've noticed that, and some show a joy differently. But the joy of Jesus can never be robbed of any believer. In fact, that's one of the ways that you'll know that you're growing and maturing because no matter what's coming your way, you have this faith and trust. God, you're going to use it for good. I don't understand it. I know that you're coming. 
And sometimes you have the, that, that mean, wicked person, and sometimes that, that really mean, nasty person, and sometimes it's the closest person to coming to the Lord. I've noticed time and time again, God, you're going to use this in some way. Notice again in John 10, 28, and I give eternal life to them, and they'll never perish and never snatch them out of my hand. So God wants us to have that assurance. And as I mentioned earlier, Philippians 1, 6, for I'm confident in this very thing, that he who began a good work will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. What is that day of Jesus Christ? Anyone know? You know what that day of Jesus Christ is? That's the rapture of the church. If you're still alive and he took, took you out, whether you would fall asleep in Jesus or you would be alive at his coming, this day of Jesus Christ is the day that he's coming for you and me. And he's coming personally, and I love that. It's not the day of the Lord, because the day of the Lord is a time of judgment. The day of Christ is a time of rewards, where God is going to reward you. And I ask myself, what is there in my life to be rewarded for? That, that's the enemy. I, I mean, we don't have to think about that, but in reality, sometimes I just don't feel like I'm everything that God would have me be. Does anyone don't agree about me being that way? What about you? You know, you know you're, you're, you're growing in him, but, but you, you want more and you know because he wants more. So it makes us, makes us really stretch. This is why we put on this helmet of salvation. And the putting on the helmet of salvation is really receiving Christ as our savior and, and, and letting the enemy Deal with Jesus Christ. I don't need to deal with him. It's like if he knocks on your door. Knock, knock, knock. Jesus, would you get the door? You let him take care of it. He says the enemy says you're not saved or you're unworthy. I tell him, yeah, I'm unworthy. But by the grace of God, I'm going to heaven. The end of conversation is finished. It's a done deal. Now, every piece of armor is very, very important. And every piece of armor is the armor of God. It involves a supernatural battle. I need, you need the armor of God. In fact, First Thessalonians 5.8 says this, but since we are of the day, that means we're the children of the light, we are to be sober, we're to be attentive, we're to be looking for, having put on the breastplate, notice of faith and love, and as a helmet and the hope of salvation. That hope is, is not hope maybe. Maybe I'll be good enough. No, it's that for sure knowing that one day that you'll be caught up to be within. First Peter 1.5, I mentioned it here and there as we go through. Notice what it says. Who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in that last time. If you had to be good enough to get to heaven, guess what? You're going to hell. But you're protected and you're kept by the power of God. And that's what's so important. That's why we press on. That's why we cast his cares upon. That's why we discipline ourselves and to seek him because he is so good. In a sense, what our lives should be like, it should take us off our feet where we literally sit down and we're speechless before him, all that he's done for us. 
and stop talking to him and just awe at who he is. See, this is what happens as we grow in him, as we get closer to him, we see him more clearly. We do see our unworthiness. But we see him in his holiness. We see him in his mercy. We see him in his love. And that he will bring us to be with him one day. Well, look with me and also in verse 17. It says, And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This last, what appears to be this last piece of armor is, is really the, the sword of the Spirit. The sword is the only weapon that he has. It's short. It's like a dagger. It's like a small knife. Vines describes it as. It's defensive uh, uh, to the attacks of the enemy. And it's offensive at the same time to help destroy the, the enemy's strategies, his schemes. Because we pull out the word of God in a sense and we know that is not true. That, that he is a liar from the beginning and he, he's throwing these lies at us and we know what the truth is. And when we know the truth, the truth will set us free. Hebrews 4.12 says this, For the word of God is living. It's active, it's sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of the soul, spirit, both joints, marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You know, when you tell someone who's an unbeliever, read the word with the intent to hear God, it is a living word of God. And that person is truly seeking the Lord. And, and they're partaking of this word. This is so precious because it takes root in their life and it produces a new heart. It produces a change in them. This word that is living, it brings seed into our life and it mends and does everything it needs to do. Now, Isaiah 49.2, look with me. It says, He has made my mouth like a sharp sword, in the shadow of his hand he has concealed me, and he has also made me select, made me a select arrow, and he's hidden me in his quiver. Now, this is messianic. This is speaking of Jesus Christ. He is the living word of God, and he's saying the Father has done this thing. And this living word of God is living in you and me, changing us and cleansing us from the inside out. Notice again in Revelation 1.16, speaking of Jesus, in his right hand he had seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in strength. Now in chapter 1, it's describing Jesus Christ. He is the risen Savior. He's the one that's worthy to open the scroll in the book of Revelation. But the church needed to hear him in all he is. He is that living word of God. And when he speaks, his word speaks, it goes in cutting out what it needs to cut and cuts it clean. This living word, by the way, this living word, when you partake of it in a like manner, though it's, it is spoken through you, it is a living word, and it is sharper than a two-edged sword. We don't need to crush people. 
We don't need to tell people all kinds of stories. We don't need to tell them all the great sin and all the great things. They do need to know their sinner. What they need to hear is the word of God because it's the word of God that will change them and transform. They don't need to hear you. They don't need to hear me. The simple testimony and give them the word of God because a person's born again by the word of God. If you're not born again today, you read. You ask God to speak to you and he will speak and you will be born again by the word of God. Now this word of God is also, the Holy Spirit takes this word of God, the spirit of truth takes this word, he works in, in the person of God, but he, again, the Holy Spirit is working this world, convicting them of their sins. All we need to do is bring the word and the Holy Spirit. We don't need to condemn the world. The world is in condemnation. The world needs to know there's a hope and that hope is in Jesus Christ. That hope is in his word. And Jesus is that, that perfect teacher. Now the emphasis in this, this present passage is how believers are to, to use this against sort of the spirit. Well, we are to use it, it is the weapon of God to defend ourselves. And that idea, because it's a dagger, it's when the enemy gets close like this, we're to bring it out. We're not to run down the hills chasing the enemy, but use it to defend ourselves. And when we defend ourselves, it's not only defensive, it's offensive to the enemy. Like the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation is always to be at hand, ready to be taken up and used when the battle begins. God gives you a word. When you've been in the word, he gives you a word, a timely word at the right time. A word sometimes of wisdom, a word of knowledge, a word of conviction, a word of comfort. Our enemies are in this world. And as long as we're in this world, we are in enemy territory. This world is not ours. We're pilgrims in this world. But we're in enemy ground. We're behind the defensive line. The world, the flesh, the devil. Those are our common enemies. And they all know how to maneuver, to entice us, to cause us to stumble, knows our weakness, and looking to, to bring us into failure. But our stability comes simply by putting on the armor of God. The armor of God is Christ himself. It's the word of God and the grace of God and the spirit of God 